you have to begin at the beginning how you intend to go on. And we're now at a point in time where we cannot ignore that this is an innovation that spans multiple generations. It spans multiple communities. It spans multiple demographics on a variety of axes. And if we don't build in more people of color, more older people, all people from different backgrounds into the actual building of this ecosystem, we're going to just make maybe different mistakes, but mistakes that I think are going to have as dramatic and catastrophic consequences going down the line. This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io, Quantstamp, and EY. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. For the future of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology, diversity and inclusion are more than corporate buzzwords. They're a fundamental requirement. Without sufficient diversity among the human beings working to develop this technology, it cannot fulfill its supporters' aspirations that it serve as the underlying governance platform for a new financial and economic system. Blockchains are systems of governance written into code. The algorithms on which blockchain systems are based contain rule sets that dictate how the users of those systems are supposed to behave. And for that reason, the question of who gets to develop those algorithms is immensely important. We all bring our own biases to any endeavor, along with the specific financial and other interests of the communities we represent. No matter how well-intentioned we might be to set them aside, those biases and interests will shape what we build. So if we're going to build code-based economic governance systems that take into account the interests of all humanity, it's important that the people involved in developing those systems represent as broad a cross-section of communities and interests as possible. But how to achieve this in a decentralized environment? There's no way to impose some top-down corporate mandate where the CEO decrees that certain metric-based goals for gender, race, religion, or sexual orientation be met. Achieving diversity within the decentralized blockchain community is a far more organic process and ultimately more challenging. So how is the blockchain community doing in this regard? Well, by many measures, not so well. Exhibit A, the meme Bitcoin bro. On the other hand, as we've addressed on this podcast, adoption and innovation is happening in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and across a variety of non-white communities here in the United States and elsewhere. How do we square all this? Well, our two guests today, people who have done as much as anyone to address these challenges, will help us address them in depth. Susan Joseph is Executive Director of FinTech at Cornell University and the Executive Director of Diversity in Blockchain. And Clef Mesador is the Executive Director of the newly formed Blockchain Foundation, an education-focused not-for-profit. Before we meet them, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. We were chatting before about this, but you said... On your way to the SALT conference, you had a little bit of a thought about... Um, I certainly, I thought, what a timely topic. So, you know, I haven't been to a crypto conference in a little while. I really am one of those people who cut down traveling a lot during the pandemic, and I'm just starting to get back into it. And so I met Crypto Bahamas, and on my flight from Miami to Nassau, I got to tell you, I mean, it was just, it hit me in the face. Probably 85% men, men of a certain age... I'm not on a direct flight from New York or Washington. So most people who are coming from outside of those two big cities are coming through Miami. 
So packed flight, everyone could go into the conference and just uh, a certain look, a certain feel, a certain style. You know, it was a homogenous, uh, one of those things, not like the other. I was definitely the outlier, let's put it that way, on that plane. So it just reminded me that when I walk through my Zoom world, I engage with people of color and women of all generations all the time. And I know you do too. When you come to places like these conferences, you realize, wow, this really is, there's something about this, something about this ecosystem that really is not what my curated experience, right? My curated experience is not reflective of kind of the broader community in, in some ways. And then to juxtapose that with the points that you made, right? Where we're seeing tremendous adoption is actually in communities of color specifically, whether that's in different countries or even the United States. So squaring that circle, I'm really eager to hear what our, our guests have to say and, and what we can all, all do to ensure that we're not having people building these systems that aren't necessarily able, to your point, that just don't have the world view that's comprehensive enough to accommodate all these different points of view culturally and in other ways. So you're really eager to hear from them about, you know, <laughs> where yeah. do we go from here? Yeah, well, let's bring them in. Okay. Clev, nice to see you again. And Susan as well, both of you. It's a pleasure to have you here. I look, I thought I might throw it to you first, Clev, because this idea of almost the gap between this adoption story that we've addressed here and then the kind of development story, uh, or maybe the investment and entrepreneurship story. And I worry that that's where it is, that in fact, you know, there are more and more users who are people of color and across a variety of interests. But in fact, you still have this centralization, if you like, around the development of this. Is that the case? And can you tell us what's your read of the situation and what needs to happen so that Sheila, you know, the next time she's on a flight, one of these things, it's a slightly different looking setup. Well, I think that's the challenge in America, right? America's economy. How do we remain competitive? But how do we close the wealth gap and the equity gap? We know that white communities, especially white male communities, dominate just about every industry, regardless of the population that they hold within that industry. Now, what's been interesting in crypto is the fact that for the first time, the largest investor base for new financial asset class that's seen as risky is Black and Latino, right? And I'd love to start with by why is that, right? I think we are seeing globally people who have been lapped out of the traditional financial system, whom the traditional financial system never worked for, who also had to create an alternative financial system to operate in, have embraced crypto. And most people think that's the unbanked, and that's not true. Yes, the unbanked is part of that, but it's also professionals like myself with advanced degrees who make good money but who wealth managers have never paid attention to, who we are still getting loans and financial instruments that are going to put us into debt. And it's also Black small businesses, Latinx nonprofits that don't get the loans from this very bank that they actually deposit their money into. So it is the spectrum. So when you look at this adoption that's happening across Black and Latino communities, it's, like, it's professionals, it's small business owners, nonprofit leaders, and it, how does the industry and how do we make sure policy align with these trends? Cliff, I just want to jump in on something you said there, because I think it's such an important point. We talk a lot about the unbanked, the underbanked, you know, I, I could, at one point I called myself the, the barely banked. But even <laughs> if you are in the formal financial system, you're not treated the same in most parts of the world. And that remains true today. And we saw this even around it was stimulus way back in the day. We saw it around PPP loans. There's so much 
disparity, diversity really within the access that people who look differently or live in different parts of the country that speak to the US in this case are treated. And so it shouldn't be surprising, you know, that you're seeing a lot of communities of color flock, I would say flock to crypto. Uh, what is it? 65% of the people who entered crypto uh, entered in the last year in terms of investment. Mm -hmm. And that disproportionately communities of color, yeah. disproportionately among that black and Latinx folks. There's just a story there that's not about, you know, appetite for risk or anything else. It's about opportunity that uh, has been wanted for a long time to do the kinds of things you're talking about, invest, get loans, you know, have plenty of collateral. It isn't about not having the wealth. It's about not having the, the access point. So it's just, it's an excellent point that I don't think is talked about enough. And even you mentioned risk for a professional like myself who has advanced degree, who makes good money as a you know, professional, a Gen Xer, risk to me is the traditional financial system. <laughs> like the yeah. riskiest part of the financial network for us has been the traditional financial system. That's where the predatory lenders and these subprime loans. So the reason that these communities are not seeing crypto as risky as people who have benefited from traditional finance, because Crypto is actually formalized and standardized. A lot of the workarounds we've actually had to use along the way. When you think about DAOs, even when you think about the early incepts of crypto, you didn't need a bank account, right? You actually just needed you. So yeah, yeah. So different perceptions about risk and different, you know, different entry points for professionals at all generational levels. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go with Nexo. For starters, you get free crypto for each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields? Up to 17% paid out daily. Ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell. Instead, borrow instant cash against your assets. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. Quantstamp is hiring. Join the leading blockchain security company and help us secure the future of Web3. Working for Quantstamp means a fully remote, flexible environment where creativity and effectiveness are valued. Our clients include projects like Ethereum 2.0, OpenSea, Maker, Aave, and Axie Infinity, and we offer compensation packages on par with big tech. Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. That's quantstamp.com slash careers. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. As businesses prepare for the token economy, EY is committed to building a better working world and connecting global business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. To learn more about the EY blockchain portfolio of products and services, visit blockchain.ey.com. That's blockchain.ey.com. Yeah, I, look, I was going to just pick up on something. I was hearing you talk about, and Sheila's mentioned as well, of the number of folks of color and others who have come in and not so much to play devil's advocate, but to know what would be going through the exactly. minds of lots of people working in this space would be say, well, hang on. What, what are your concerns? We've built these tools. We've given access to precisely the problem that Clay was talking about in terms of the old financial systems exclusion. So it's working. So Sheila, your concerns about how many white guys are on that airplane are, are overstated because ultimately the goal is a better financial system. And hey, look, we're achieving that. 
Susan, how would you respond to that if that sort of uh, response was come? So I think that you, because crypto is an early industry, what you're getting in some ways is sort of cherry picking the audience who's using it, meaning that you're getting your first adopters. And if you really want to get at the mainstream, you have to be able to have a system in place that encourages reaching out to that mainstream. And while you might have your higher educated or your groups that are now adopting it at first, that's not where you're going to get the bulk of your sort of what I would call more mainstream adoption. So yeah, it might be working initially for a small percentage of people who are using crypto, but it's not hitting mainstream. When you start to look at this separated out by age, who's investing in this, it's quite clear that of the there's a certain level that crypto doesn't reach older generations. There's a certain level of women that crypto doesn't reach. There's just, it's not there yet. So you need to have that education and the face of crypto being one face at all these conferences is definitely, I think, an issue. If you don't have your model of somebody who is kind of like you, then how do you understand what this is and what it means for you? If I told you that the largest growing segment of gaming is senior citizens over the age of 60 to 65, and that crypto might appeal to them because it's in some way a designed with a more economic gaming structure, maybe you would step back and say, how could I figure out how I could reach that population and educate them to bring them more mainstream? So I think having this one mindset of one type of person who presents only then brings one type of view to the table and you don't get as quick mainstream adoption as you'd like. I would love to add to that because I, I think it depends on your definition of mainstream. I totally agree. While I celebrate the adoption within Black and Latino communities, I recognize that that does not mean Black and Latina women, right? So we have to do more in gender inclusion. Mm -hmm. But let's be clear, mainstream is Black and brown. This country's demographic is younger and browner. And as you looked at the crypto space 10 years from now, 15 years from now, mainstream will essentially be a diverse marketplace but you're absolutely right. Right now, we have four generations that dominate the marketplace, right? Baby boomers, Gen Xers like me, you know, millennials, as well as the Zoomers in high school and college. And we have to meet all of those needs. I, I wonder, though, you know, so, and, and I agree with you, but I, I also wonder, because I always feel like the aging market is not, it's a market that's never spoken of. And that's a market that holds a lot of wealth. And it surprises me that nobody has really thought about that kind of demographic. You know, I, in separate guises, run roundtables for different types of places. And to a T, you can find out that parents with teenage kids, so generally in their 40s or 50s, are saying, well, I don't actually really know what crypto is, but my son or daughter just made a ton of money on an NFT and... So I don't really know what this is, but all of a sudden you're now looking at some kind of generational gap here as well, that when you don't have the protocols being developed to address that, you know, or the education to address that, you're missing out that whole piece of the marketplace. Well, that's the beauty of this conversation. The diversity and inclusion includes so much, Sheila. Yeah, definitely. Right. And I think it's also just important to note that 
uh, there's an older demographic that that runs Washington and many state legislatures. You know, we, we certainly aren't talking about millennials and Zoomers for the most part. We're talking about baby boomers and, you know, even some from before, right, from the greatest <laughs> generation who are, who are still hanging on, you know, and a lot of Gen Xers, increasing number of Gen Xers. And so it concerns me just as much that policy might be made by folks who, who aren't being targeted as those who should understand crypto uh, as it does that, that they're maybe not the ones that are adopting it in the same way. And certainly we hear from a lot of folks that uh, policymakers that, you know, their grandkids or their younger kids, you know, nieces and nephews and this kind of thing are the ones who are bringing them aboard and kind of onboarding them into this ecosystem and getting them to understand that it's not just dangerous and scary and all those kinds of things. It's really fun and exciting. So there's that as well. But I also think that this conversation spotlights are so many axes of diversity. And this is certainly something we could talk about. We could have, you know, we could go on for days and days about this. But what I think is really critical and important in, in crypto and in Web3 is that we should be very, very aware of the many, many horrifying mistakes that were made during Web2. I mean, just these are well cataloged in the press and other places, whether it's algorithms misidentified people of color as animals, whether it's uh, just systematic sexism and trolling and like nonsense and harassment that was built and baked into systems and actually rewarded through feedback loops, right? Like trolling someone or being super gross to them, particularly if they're a woman online, there was a period of time where that was actually rewarded behavior. Now we try to root it out, but that was, that took time to get to that place where harassment online was understood as a real problem. So a lot of these things are things I think we have to be very careful about. And we think about, like, I'll tell you, we've all been in Discord channels with DAOs where some of those are toxic. Ooh, they are just a cesspools of toxicity. And other ones that are run beautifully, where you feel like there's just a lot of uh, respect and a lot of learning and empowerment going on. And so how do you incentivize this kind of behavior? Well, I would argue you can't really do that if you don't have folks in the room who have these lived experiences. And I think that is a major mistake that was made during Web 2 that you put a bunch of, you know, young white male coders in a room, maybe they all dropped out of Harvard and that was what they had in common. Who knows? You know, all kinds of different choices. They built a certain system. They built it for themselves and their friends. They built it to do a certain thing. And that isn't even necessarily something that you can throw at them because I don't think they all realize what was going to come of that at that time. But you have to begin at the beginning how you intend to go on. And we're now at a point in time where we cannot ignore that this is an innovation that spans multiple generations. It spans multiple communities, it spans multiple demographics on a variety of axes. And if we don't build in more people of color, more older people, all people from different backgrounds into the actual building of this ecosystem, we're going to just make maybe different mistakes, but mistakes that I think are going to have as dramatic and catastrophic consequences going down the line. And I worry we're just going to wind up building exclusionary gates and models into this, not even realizing that we're doing it. So my question to both of you, and whoever would like to go first is, you know, what do we do? How is it, is it a matter of, are we going about educating the right people? Are, are there barriers to entry to get into this? I mean, everyone I know is hiring. So I don't think it's that there's no jobs. That's not it. So what do we do? What are your, your ideas and suggestions for how we mix it up? So I can tell you, education is the answer for right now. Almost everybody I know in this, and I've been involved in this since about 2015, is self-educated. There's zero reason to say that you can't self-educate and you don't need a university degree, though that would be nice to have. And on certain aspects of coding, et cetera, you would want professional instruction. But there's a lot of aspects of this industry that aren't just coding, they're community development, there's accounting, there's social aspects, there's a lot of aspects, and there's a lot of self-education that you could take on. Well, one of the things that really 
stood out to me in the beginning when we were launching diversity in blockchain is we actually went out to community colleges to start our education. Just whoever could be invited, we went in person back in the days when lots of in-person meetings happened. And the people showing up were literally all walks of life. They were just curious and they didn't want to be talked down to. And so I think that what happens in this industry is it becomes an extremely technical endeavor to try and learn something about it when that's important, but it shouldn't be the focus. And a lot of the explaining has occurred at the technical level. And that's not necessarily how you're going to get a lot of people adopting it when you continually have this conversation that focuses on the technology. Now, that can be because the developers are the majority of who's in this, and they're all interested and excited and talking about it. And that's great for them, but it doesn't cross over the boundary to what it means to the rest of the world. So I'll just throw that out there and I'll, I'll let you jump in. I agree. Education, education, education. And Sheila, you're absolutely right. When we debated the internet and policies for the internet in the 1990s, we didn't have these conversations about, yeah, about inclusion and education and access. And we have the opportunity now as we're contemplating Web3, right? And it, it has to be about financial literacy, but also skills training and also greater access to capital for entrepreneurship. We just talked about, you know, what's driving Black and Latino communities to become investors. I think one of the reasons we're not seeing as much gender inclusion, regardless of race, is because for women, our disposable income is precious. And we know when we're missing out, but we have kids to take care of and parents to take care of and whole households we're responsible for. So we have to have an educational conversation, but I call it a wraparound conversation, right? We have to tell women about the opportunities with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to build wealth, but also the career opportunities. COVID, right? Women were the greatest casualties of COVID, professional women specifically. And they're looking for opportunities to work virtually, but having more meaningful work. And we need to talk to women more about the fact that they can buy Bitcoin, yeah, but they can look at a new career path in this space as well. So that includes the skills training. And also the, the great resignation is a shift towards entrepreneurship to a large degree. So how do we ensure there's greater access to capital? Because we know the data shows women entrepreneurs do not get VC funding. So it's education, but it's that wraparound as well to make sure we're talking about building wealth, but also providing, investing in skills training and also making sure there's access to capital. I, I think really want to pick up on, I mean, what Susan said there, and I think the way that you responded to that in Claire, because I, I mean, yes, education, 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 but I think like this finer point that you were making there, Susan, is really interesting that if it's all going to be about the technical education, then you're already creating an exclusionary environment. And I think it's very, very true. I know that even folks, it doesn't matter whether you're a person of color or from elsewhere, that the biggest barrier I think you find to anybody coming to this space is they say, I don't understand it. It's, it's too difficult. But if we immediately default to the idea that the thing you need to understand is this highly technical cryptographic element, as opposed to all the stuff that got me into the space, which is a conversation around governance and organization and who we are as a society, then yeah, you're going to have another form of bias. You're going to take all of the biases that exist within the STEM world, and they're going to suddenly just transform themselves into this. So I think that's a really, really important point. But what I'd like to be able to do, though, is like just to drill down a little bit into how do you organize around that process? How do you organize around getting the right education? Because 
Sheila talked about the mistakes made in Web 2. And that's very, very clear, right? The algorithms running everything and all of that. And I would say that, yes, as much as we have worked hard to remove the rewards that exist for antisocial behavior, it's still there in many respects because the business models that we that are built around Web2 platforms are all about rewarding likes and engagement. And sadly, that's still happening. So, But the thing is, those mistakes were made kind of collectively by us, right? Again, there's not a central CEO saying, here are the rules. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the mandate. There's a collective social media community. Who's in charge, right? That's even bigger a challenge when it comes to decentralized organizations that blockchains are. So how do we go about it? How do we target? Who are the people that drive this? Do you need to find the CEOs of all the different blockchain companies and have them lead the agenda? Or is this something far more kind of organic and culturally based? So I, I don't know, Clev, maybe you, know, you, know, you, you could lead this. Yeah, I do think it's more organic and culturally based, right? Look at the data that shows Black and Latino adoptions leading by double digits, right? It wasn't the industry that targeted Black and Latino communities. It was Black and Latino innovators over the last decade in crypto that went into our communities, did that education. I remember three years ago uh, doing a call with Jesse Jackson, who heads Rainbow Push, because he does this annual conference in New York, and we wanted to have a panel about crypto, and he wanted me to explain to him first. That did not go well. But to his credit, he created a space for us to have a conversation with the you know, with the participants. And when we've been doing the Black Blockchain Summit for the last four years at Howard University, we know Isaiah Jackson wrote Bitcoin in a Black America. He's one of the TV hosts, which was one of the great ways we catapulted people. On Coindesk TV, I'm sorry, I have to to go in there and do a bit of a plug here. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Glenn. (laughs) Bitcoin Zay, he's one of our leaders. So for the Black and Latino community, we've had to create space for us to talk about this. I talk about fractionalization as likening it to layaway. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can just put $10 a month. And and DAOs, right? I don't talk about DAOs. I talk about cooperative because making it make sense for the communities. And I think when I talk to sorority groups about crypto, I have a different conversation as well. But I do think for the Black and Latino community, we have a blueprint for what we've been doing over the last 10 years that has led to the adaption that we've seen. Okay. I'll just add to that. I think that we've actually seen uh, in many cases, the black community and Latinx community, but really the black community being leading the way. I mean, being the tip of the spear, right? When I think when it comes to NFTs, the amount of engagement that you saw from black artists, uh, we had an episode about this, Michael, a year ago, I think now uh, with Kai Sheffield and Lothalvo Huba, where we talked about Black creators um, and NFTs and how that was just a movement that was blowing up and catapulting that entire area to the next level. Uh, And so I think that, you know, we know this happens over and over again, right? Like a community of color will grab onto something or it's maybe it's the LGBTQ community or whatever it is, it'll kind of find its roots somewhere and then it will actually reverse mainstream in many cases. So I do think we have to be uh, I just want to, you know, commend in a way, but kind of just note and land the point that a lot of times it's actually the innovations happening within communities that are not the ones that are really getting the credit, maybe in the mainstream press, or that are kind of the ones that are featured on CNBC or, you know, whatever it is, it's other folks who are driving the innovation in very meaningful ways and taking it and running with it. And I think to Club's point, that's in part because it's an opportunity 
that they have wanted and have not been able to access through traditional, you know, I'd call them legacy systems. They have been excluded or it's been the barriers to entry to do these kinds of things have been almost impossible. NFTs isn't necessarily an example of that, but in other things, yield farming, other kinds of things are examples of where you're trying to find pretty standard operating model. I mean, getting a loan is not something that's like mind-blowing in terms of why you'd want it and what you're going to do with it, right? But getting the access to it is a very, very different set of considerations and factors that go into that. So I think that what's happening, at least what I see, what I saw kind of at the forum, we talked about quite a bit at my, during my time there, was you're seeing these pockets. You're kind of seeing communities that are evolving, that are very robust and very rich, and they don't really connect, which is interesting considering that we all are operating on the same protocols. We're using the same, you know, the same protocol layer, right? No one's building their own. I don't see the Latin, Latinx community going and building its own protocol. They're just engaging with the same protocols, but in different ways. And the communities are somewhat separate. And I would say they're even more separate uh, and more, I think it's a more profound separation than you saw in Web2, where because of the centralized nature, Yes, there are communities on Twitter. There's Black Twitter. There's Crypto Twitter. There's, you know, there's um, Liza Minnelli Twitter, which is a hilarious subset of gay Twitter. There's all these different kinds of, you know, things and communities you can kind of create, uh, but there's open access to them. And ironically, you don't necessarily see the same, I think, cross-pollination happening within crypto. So I'm just curious. I, I see Clev nodding. So I'm curious if that's just kind of the bird's eye take I have on that, if that you see that reflected. And then Susan, I'd love to hear from you as well. But Clev, do you kind of feel like that's happening? Like you're getting this really rich experience within a subculture, but it isn't necessarily translating to other parts of the ecosystem? Yeah, yeah. There's definite packets that are happening that are driving this. Just within the last probably two years, Web3 Familia is another group that has grown tremendously. Just talking about Web3, targeting the Latino community, And what they've built is just incredible. And you're right, it's not building a new protocol, it's just shifting the direction of it for that community. Even when you look at CityCoin, right, and what happened with Miami Coin, and even, you know, what we hope to see with New York CityCoin, what has been happening is Black and Latino developers have been going into key cities and actually looking at how do they create that piece and do it with state legislatures, going to Black communities, majority Latino communities, work with the mayor, work with the city council to actually create finally a local coin based on, again, cryptocurrency that would actually achieve those goals. And I think what we need to see, we need to see the industry line up with those trends because I do think those French trends, those, that's what's going to drive the industry in the future, in the next decade or two. So I have a couple of thoughts here. I mean, a project that I have long wanted to do, so if anybody is up for this, I'm putting it out there, is we need a crypto census because it's not enough to have these few surveys that come along that tell us 17% of this, 24% of that, whatever, and it's whoever happened to conduct the survey. There's nothing that is telling us really overall connecting these groups, so to speak connecting the pockets and the statistics of this. And I'm not hopeful that any government entity would ever take this on to figure this out. Um, But I think it's something that the crypto industry could take on and could show itself better. Again, we are at the beginning of adoption. So, you know, I see a fair amount of investment clubs, kind of like the Beardstown lady sort of thing showing up where people that you didn't know were involved in crypto all of a sudden have some exposure to it because they're in this local investment group. So I see 
again, pockets coming like that. There is literally no way to get a voice of this. And when you don't have this sort of unified census approach, it's hard to then truly say who's here and what's the policy and what needs to change and to continue the education of this. Because you're right, it is extremely dispersed. I mean, it is decentralized. And but that doesn't mean that you can't have a unified voice over here's who's here. Let, let's see about who's here. And I really think that that's the next thing that has to happen, the next kind of big undertaking to do it. It is, but it it goes to the heart of this thing I keep going back to, though, Susan. And there's like, okay, you need somebody. You you can have a government census because there's a government in charge that from the top will dictate, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go off and measure everybody, right? It keeps coming back to the same challenge. However, listening to the conversation we've had just now, like it may be that the, the answer to the question I asked earlier is like, how do you resolve the challenge of there not being some sort of central, you know, uh, conduit, if you like, to actually sort of implement policies that we're interested in is actually the wrong way of thinking about it because it's precisely the organic nature of this decentralized structure that brings us these surprising and sometimes very positive areas of innovation. I don't know how we're going to ever get to the point where we get to measure all of that. Maybe, you know, eventually there's a sort of a, a collective statistical thing that is just, just there. But my sense is that, that this may be a trade-off that what we see as important in a centralized world, that is order and structure and knowledge of every single piece, and then sort of calibrating policy around that is something we have to give up for the sake of having this organic approach. You know, I'm just speculating. I I don't know because I do see otherwise. I think it's also naive to assume that if we all stand back and let this happen, it's all just going to be fine. There has to be some sort of proactive approach for this. So we need to wrap in a moment. On that note, I'd maybe just like to ask both of you, Clev, you first, and it looks like you're, you're eager to come in here anyway, and just give me a take on, you know, looking at that balancing act that I'm just talking about, what is the most important thing that we collectively need to be focused on here? Yeah, I don't believe it's standardization. Sus- I understand Susan's instinct that we need data, but as a Black woman, Data has been against people of color. Data sets have never been inclusive. The census have, has always, you know, we've always been in the blind spot of these numbers. So when you start collecting data, that is how, you know, communities of color get actually, you know, become hidden figures. And also when you start standardizing things, that's when you actually create barriers to entry that goes against decentralization. So I do think what you were talking about, the trade-offs, is what we're going to have to decide about decentralization, right? Or do we want crypto to mirror the centralized world that actually locks people out? Or are we willing to create a new space where we can actually have these conversations? And I think before we talk about data, we have to talk about the historical issue of data being used to keep people out. But, but, But I would say, I think, you know, we still have so much education to do. We have, you know, Susan started by saying, you know, we, we started with, there's a lot of self-education. When I first learned about this, when I was in the Obama administration in 2013, I was very excited. I went down the rabbit hole. 2016, I was like all in. 2017, luckily I had the resources to focus on being entrepreneur full time. But new people don't have that luxury that we did, having years to connect, to learn, to... So we, 
education. We have to start there, but we have to think of it in a decentralized manner, how we create this new open financial system. Susan, a word from you to close. Yep. So uh, education is, and not so much education for education's sake, but how you communicate it needs to be communicated better, needs to be communicated more broadly. Um, It needs to touch people. It's not really touching people. So there's that. But I also go back to the idea of data. And Clev, I take your point about data being traditionally be excluded. But that's kind of the point of if you've got decentralized data and you can figure out who's here, then you know who's missing. Because if you don't know who's missing, you can't figure out how to reach them. Yeah. Sheila, do you want to, I'm sure you've got some thoughts before we close this out. I have so many thoughts. I could go, you know, I could go another half hour, but I think just in a nutshell, you know, I, I'll, I'll just say, I, I think we've really flagged the problem. I think we've targeted some, you know, high level solutions. I certainly support education. I think there's been work, you know, I think like Circle, for example, to make these investments in HBCUs. I think my friend Michelle Neitz is doing a lot of work with community colleges in California to get curriculum created that can kind of help people get courses and understand things technical and non-technical. There's a lot of activity, I think, happening in, in this space, including all the way down to kind of the high school and elementary level, even at this point, uh, not anywhere near enough and not anywhere near enough that is targeted at uh, people who don't traditionally kind of choose to enter into spaces that are perceived broadly in the mainstream as still being risky. And I think we have to acknowledge that these are not traditional careers by any stretch of the imagination. When I left into this, you know, I was senior enough in my career, kind of to Clev's point that I was like, hey, why not? Who's going to tell me what to do anymore? But had I been in my early 20s as a, a young woman of color, I don't know that I would have felt as confident to take that kind of risk, even with the educational pedigree that, that I have, which is a profound one. So I think we have to be very mindful of the realities that face a lot of people that are not just socioeconomic, although that's a very real one. They're also cultural. There are cultural barriers to jumping feet first into a space that isn't necessarily seen as welcoming or inclusive at its inception. It's not perceived that way. Now, I think one thing we didn't ask the three women on this panel, including me, or not this panel, in this, in this, in this episode, including me, uh, it's been a day of panels, is um, you know, what's our lived experience in crypto? Because my experience is very positive in crypto. I have found a lot less trolling here than I found in Web2. I found a lot more willingness to you know, be able to ask questions and feel heard and feel respected than I felt in Web2, frankly, or even in traditional law. So I think it's important to tell that part of this as well, that I do find this to be a very warm and and, and a community that includes people. Maybe it's not inclusive in the way we've defined it during this episode, but it's a a community that includes people who are willing to ask the question and kind of take the risk. There's a huge distinction between being in the community and not being in the community. Uh, My husband, I think, recently jumped into crypto full-time before he was on the outside of it. I can tell you he's deeply knowledgeable, but without jumping in and making the commitment, there's a perception that you're not serious about it. So trying to educate yourself when you're not in it is a lot harder than taking a job as a young person at a company and like getting trained, right? Like it's, it's a different kind of world. So I think there's a lot of talk on crypto Twitter about normies and this and that. We have to, I think, be just mindful of the fact that anybody asking questions is trying to learn We need to be patient, we need to be open, and we need to make sure that we are, all of us, especially those of us, four of us here, who are leaders in this industry, are trying to communicate and extend our awareness and our knowledge uh, to communities beyond those who happen to naturally fall into our orbits. And I think that goes for every leader in this space. If we are not naturally trying to go beyond our immediate orbit and be more inclusive in our approach to getting people into this ecosystem, we're going to simply wind up with a whole bunch of, you know, ex-Harvard lawyers like me 
are a bunch of like Stanford dropouts or whatever it is. We're going to just create those patterns over and over again. And I think that we all can agree that that would be, uh, I think, a truly a tragedy beyond just kind of, you know, mildly bad. I think it would be deeply, profoundly problematic. So that's my, that's my note, Michael. And thanks for giving a, a warning about the tragedy that we confront if we don't resolve this. But it does sound like there's, you know, there's reason for hope from what all of you are saying, uh, which is, which is encouraging. Well, on that note, thank you very much to Susan Joseph and to Clev Mesador, and of course, to my co-host, Sheila Warren, as always. It's a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, and thank you to all of you, uh, listeners and viewers of uh, Money Reimagined. Do come back again next week for another edition. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Susan Joseph and Clev Mesador. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine and additional production support from Eleanor Paul. Our theme song is Shepherd. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. 